On this episode of Off the Floor, I meet with Dan McGinn from the Harvard Business Review and author of the book, Psyched Up. You do not want to miss this episode. What happens when you combine business, pop culture, and at least five analogies to ballroom dancing? You get Off the Floor, a podcast to help you get to that next step in your career or your tango. Here's our host, Chris. Lionel. We're visiting with Dan McGinn, and um, he is the author of, of a few books, but but the book that we're going to be talking about today is called Psyched Up, and I couldn't think of a better book that really speaks to not only our students, but also the professionals in our industry. Everything from, you know, conquering some of the different hacks and tips and tricks on pre-performance routines, all the way to just like rallying our own troops. Um, and so thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So going into it, was there a, a point that you could look back on where you knew that you wanted to write a book like this? So the book actually originates from a couple of different things. Um, first, I was a, a not a very good athlete, but I was a high school athlete. So I played football and basketball in high school and I became I'm really fascinated by the pregame routines and the superstitions and the music and the pep talks, the things that the coaches would orchestrate to try to get us in the right mindset to play our best during the games. So that was the first thing. The second thing was, as an adult, I would occasionally run into former athletes who are now doing, you know, very white collar kind of professional work. I, one was a, a partner at a big accounting firm, a lawyer, even a surgeon who approached the pregame of those kind of, you know, big presentation to the board of directors or brain surgery before that they would do something that was very similar to what they would do before an athletic competition when they were a teenager. And then the third thing was I started working at Harvard Business Review. And in my job, I see a lot of academic research across my desk. And every so often I would see a study that touched on exactly this kind of thing. You know, a group of people would be asked to do something like a ritual or some of a, some sort of behavior before a competitive event and it would impact how well they did. So once I saw the research, I knew there was a book in this and, you know, I'd literally been thinking about it since I was a teenager. So there was a big history for me to draw on. I think about um, how you described your uh, your role on your basketball team as being like Red Auerbach's cigar. <laughs> that was so good. Yeah, I, I, uh, I did not get a lot of quality minutes. Um, in football, uh, you know, one of the funnier moments of my high school football career was when I would come off the field after a game not having played, and my then high school girlfriend would take a look at me and shit, say, well, at least you won't need to do laundry because my uniform didn't get dirty at all. <laughs> so now if you had to think about some of the people, I mean, you had such a wonderful, positive inspiration, these great stories and anecdotes. Did you go in with like a playlist of people that you wanted to get in touch with? Did it just kind of organically start to expand? How did you go into that? Um, no, it was just your basic reporting process. You know, whenever you, you know, you find somebody who's interesting to interview, you interview them and then you ask, who else should I talk to? And it's sort of like a game of a telephone tree from there. Some of it came from, you know, I was reading widely during this period. I would, you know, read everything I could find on issues of performance anxiety anxiety, confidence building, um, and just looked for people with cool stories, some of them famous, but some of them very unfamous, uh, and tried to put it together in a compelling way. And that's great. And then were a few of the people that you that you interviewed, were they, they were already acquaintances that you had, or how did it all originate? There were a couple of professors. There's one Harvard professor in particular who I'd done some work with 
um, in my day job at Harvard Business Review. Um, but for the most part, I didn't really know many of these people. It's like anything else. You know, the last book I did before this, this one was on the real estate boom. So I was talking to real estate agents and home builders and economists. Um, so one of the fun things about doing projects like this is you sort of, you're almost like an anthropologist. You enter into this world you don't know anything about and you try to very quickly learn as much as you can. Um, whether it's, you know, talking to academic experts and going to West Point, going to Juilliard, talking to Jerry Seinfeld, General McChrystal, um, you know, just trying to talk to a range of experts and high performers about what they do before they perform. So if you had to pick one of your favorite stories from the book, uh, which one really stands out to you the most? So one of the characters that I really enjoyed the most in the book was a guy named T.J. Connolly. He's the centerpiece of a chapter on how music can be part of people's psych-up routine. Um, T.J. has probably one of the most coolest jobs in the world. He is the in-house park DJ for both the Boston Red Sox and the New England Patriots. So if you go to a Red Sox game or you go to a Patriots game and you listen to the music that's playing during batting practice at Fenway or during the warm-ups the game, the music that comes on during sort of important moments in the game, he's the one that chooses chooses all of it. And um, he helps the players in baseball choose the music. They walk up to the plate with their walk-up songs. Um, and so he really, you know, there's a lot of science about what makes one song motivational or, you know, how music can help you perform better. But TJ is is a practitioner of it at the highest level in these very high-profile venues. The game actually, last weekend, there was a game at Gillette and Tony Romo was announcing it. And he said, you know, I've never heard music as good as I'm hearing here at Gillette during this game. And that was because the Patriots have one of the best DJs in the business. Oh, wow. That is so cool. I haven't got to that chapter yet. I'm I'm like almost halfway through, but it's been such a great read so far. And I loved the story of Kagiyama. My mom has a music school. And so when you mentioned the thing that he studied under Suzuki, I, you know, I was geeking out at that moment. His story, just the whole character arc and how he went from the, the virtuoso to becoming that professor at Juilliard was su super fascinating. Yeah, he was, a, he was a really great example. And I enjoyed spending time with him too. He was, as you suggested, he was a trained violinist from the time he was two or three years old, got good enough at the violin to get into Juilliard, but he was always aware that no matter how much he practiced when he went into an audition or a tryout, he never got quite 100% because nerves were kind of chipping away a little bit. You know, his fingers might get a little sweaty when he was playing the violin because he was nervous and they would slip in the strings. So he became very interested in this idea that practice isn't enough. You need to have a game plan for how to deal with the emotions and the nerves and the anxiety. And that's really the theme of the book. In a larger sense, the idea that, you know, there's nothing in the books that suggests that practice is not important. You know, Malcolm Gladwell says you still need your 10,000 hours of practice before you get really expert at something. What the book argues is that 10,000 hours is not enough. You also need a plan so that if you get nervous before you perform, the nervousness doesn't undo you. You need to have a plan to counteract that, to sort of manage the emotional side of it. And Noah Kageyama teaches an entire semester long course on that at Juilliard. You know, they're not just studying how to play their instruments better, they're also study how to deal with the emotion and the anxiety that goes along with these high stakes tryouts. Well, and I think, you know, you hit it right on the head. Like the one thing that people can take from outliers with Malcolm Gladwell is, is they take the 10,000 hours and they just assume that that's the recipe. But if that's 10,000 private hours without anybody in front of them, that's a totally different dynamic. And I love that you shed light on the fact that you really do need to pressure test that practice in front of people. And I, I mean, I think Kageyama's class 
sounds like something everybody could benefit from. Yeah, you think about it. At the end of Kageyama's class, you know, he's taught the students all these techniques. A lot of them involve breathing and visualization and, you know, all these sort of things that can help them manage the nerves of an audition. And then for their final exam, he tells them he's going to put them through an audition and he tells them, you know, all the circumstances that, you know, they're going to have a private room where they're able to rehearse for the last few minutes before they go on. There's going to be a screen there so that the judges can't see them. The judges can only hear them play. But then when he actually brings the students into the audition, intentionally, everything goes wrong. You know, the the rehearsal room turns out to be very noisy and not very conducive to practice. He disables the elevator. So the students have to carry their instruments up multiple flights of stairs, which gets them all sweaty. They get into the room and there's no no screen and the piano is out of tune and just one thing after another. And the idea here is that, you know, our practice sort of assumes that we're going to be in these perfect conditions. But the reality is things get messy and practicing in a way that deals with that messiness and doesn't let it get you upset or knock you off your game. You know, that's part of what it takes to be successful. Absolutely. It sounds like Bill Belichick may have gone to the Kagiyama school of, of training. <laughs> he definitely, uh, you know, at, we're in, I'm in New England and we, you, know, you you and I were talking earlier, we got close to 15 inches of snow yesterday. And I saw on Twitter, there was a picture of the Patriots at practice. You know, they every school and every government and every office in New England was closed. Bill Belichick had the Patriots practicing because that's the way they do it. Yeah, that's, you know, there's definitely something to be said for adversity and how it builds toughness. Yeah, absolutely. And didn't he do something where he he put those thermometers in the in like the the hallways of the visiting team to show everybody how cold it was or something like that? Yeah, he was. He, you know, that was a little bit of psychological gamesmanship. Uh, I read that same story, um, and it was interesting. And part of what's interesting about that, there's a chapter in the book on pep talks, and it turns out there's an actual you know big body of research. Some of it drawn from sports, some of it drawn from military, and some of it from business on what elements go into making a successful pep talk. And when I was reporting that chapter, you know, I was expecting to read about people like Belichick. It turns out Belichick is sort of the opposite school. Belichick is very, you know, he doesn't believe in trying to get people's emotions all that fired up. He's much more analytical, much more about do your job, do the work. Um, So there are coaches who are really, really into the pep talks. Belichick is much more sort of quiet, head down, grind it out. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of, um, I I love that the story of the the Navy SEAL team and how they were so calm that some of them fell asleep on their way on the the bin Laden mission. And, you know, that that idea that you don't need to spike everybody's emotions to get an effective result. Yeah, I think when when you think about getting psyched up, one of the things you need to think about is whether what you're doing is routine or whether it's really out of the ordinary. And obviously, no matter how experienced you are in the military, if you're going on a mission to try to either kill or capture Osama bin Laden, that's pretty out of the ordinary. But it is it does say something that these SEALs were so experienced and had been doing stuff like this for so long that most of them just fell asleep during the helicopter ride because they didn't have all, they were practiced, they knew what the operation was. It, it was just bus- almost business as usual for them. So for those of you that are listening, if we said that there's going to be a chapter where there's going to be a reference to the movie Hoosiers and then a talk about capturing Osama bin Laden in the same chapter, it would probably sound pretty surprising, but it just works. That reference was just so perfect at that point. Yes. Uh, so uh, in the final moments before the SEALs took off to uh, fly over to Pakistan for the Osama bin Laden mission, um, 
Admiral McRaven, who was the commander on the ground there running that, he gave them a pep talk and he drew exactly from the final pep talk in the movie Hoosiers, where Gene Hackman's character is in this gigantic basketball arena and he has the players measure the hoop to see that it's still 10 feet and measure the free throw line to see that it's still 15 feet. And the idea is, you know, this is a much different setting with 10,000 seats, much bigger than the gyms we've been playing in all season. But the actual court and the actual mechanics of what we need to do, this is the same thing we've been doing every night for the last six months. And McRaven's message was the same. You know, this feels like it's very important and very different, but this is the same kind of work you guys have been doing your whole career. Yeah, that is so good. So is there, from like a discovery standpoint, were, were there any like big revelations, like as you were assembling this and you maybe sat back and had an interview with somebody and you just said, whoa, that is like really good. Like, you know, maybe a, a vantage point that you'd never really thought that you would have found going into it. So I think the biggest aha that I had was more conceptual in the sense that, you know, if you were to think back to the kind of psyching up that I experienced when I was 17 years old and playing high school football, it was mostly about getting my energy level up and about getting that adrenaline flowing. And that when I, when I thought about psyching up prior to actually reporting this and looking at the research and talking to experts, I had that kind of simplistic view of it. Once you actually read the research and talk to dozens of psychologists and people who do this for a living, you figure out that it's much more nuanced than that. I, instead of just thinking about energy, I I see it is a lot like managing anxiety. You know, in general, you want to try to find ways to crank your anxiety down, manage it as best you can. And then simultaneously, you want to find ways to boost your confidence level. You know, I used to think about psyching up like a light switch, like you would just flip it on and get that adrenaline going. I came away thinking about it more as like the tuners on a stereo where you're trying to tune these individual knobs. Anxiety goes down, confidence goes up, energy level goes up or down, depending on what kind of thing you're doing. I think I've gone through both. Like I, I remember as a, as a high school athlete, it was that kind of the rah-rah, get psyched up, you know, push your teammates around and do kind of a mosh pit at the very beginning. And then when I became a competitive ballroom dancer, it was like the opposite. As I was reading that, I started to have my own revelation of, whoa, that's why that started to work. Like I, I created this routine where it was really quiet and I had headphones on and I did the same thing before every single practice and every single competition. And that's when I was operating at my very best. What do you feel like more people could do or should be doing when it comes to like their pre performance routines. And let's just say if you're talking to a group of our dance students, you know, what are some takeaways that you think that they could get from this? Well, what you just said is actually super relevant and super useful. The idea that you came up with a set of routines that you did the same way every time. There's a large body of research, a lot of it from sports psychology, across a wide array of different kind of activities. They've looked at everything from billiards to to soccer goal shooting. And in general, the, the more somebody does something the same way every time, the better they are likely to perform at the activities that subsequent to that. And that was one set of studies find. And then the second set of studies, they actually do interventions where they'll take a bunch of people who don't have a routine before they say, jump off a high dive in competition. And they'll teach them to take like five seconds and do a few simple things before they do it, but to do it the same way every time. And they'll generally see their performance increase as a result of that. You know, there's something about human beings. We crave ritual. We find it comforting. We like to know what to expect. And from a practical standpoint, these pregame kind of routines and rituals, they can distract us 
us from being nervous, from being anxious. They give us something else to focus on. So I think the advice, you know, you learn this yourself in your own career as a dancer. I think if people could learn that or even, you know, take a few minutes to study your lessons and teach them how to do this, um, I think it, it can have a market impact on the way people actually perform under pressure. That's wonderful. So why is it that people feel like nervousness is so unique? You know, we have so many students that come in and they say, I know that if I go there, I'm going to be I'm going to be so nervous and I'm going to be the only one. Why do you think that is? Well, for many people, being nervous is a very uncomfortable physical sensation. I mean, think about what happens if you're standing up in front of a crowd and that jolt of adrenaline hits you. You know, your breathing gets shallow. You start to feel your heart beating rapidly. Your mouth may get dry. Your throat may constrict a little bit. Your eyes might start to blink a whole lot. Um, your body temperature may drop a little bit because your circulation, you know, your blood's flowing to different parts of your body differently. When that happens, it's normal. It's biology. You know, we may be evolved to a point where we do recreational events like competitive ballroom dancing. But, you know, biologically, we're still the same species that was getting chased through the jungle by predators not too long ago. And, you know, the reason that we survive as long as we have is because adrenaline kicks in, this fight or flight instinct takes over and our bodies change as a result of it. So I think normalizing the experience and recognizing that, you know, hey, my body is doing exactly what it's programmed to do. This is what helped us get here. You know, it may be a little bit uncomfortable, but it's normal. There's nothing wrong with me and I just need to work through it. It's not unlike, you know, if you're running a marathon, you know, there's a point, you know, at mile 20 or so where, you know, your body starts to feel a, a certain set of sensations. Reacting to that, recognizing that it's normal, expecting it and being prepared to sort of push through it. I think that's, you know, in your situation, the same kind of thing can work. Oh, that's great. What do you think, you know, for those people that feel like they need to have that one perfect minute right on minute one and are going to be kind of blindsided by that, that adrenaline? Well, instead of expecting perfection, what I might suggest that people do is before they take that first step out onto the floor is to take 20 seconds and retrospectively look back on perfection. Now, I talk in the book a bit about the idea of everybody creating their own mental greatest hits reel. And in your profession or your field, I imagine that in many of your situations, your students actually are videotaped while they're competing. You know, it's not a bad idea for somebody to put together a highlight reel of their best moments as a dancer, put it on their phone, and before they go out on the dance floor, take 20 seconds and look at it and think to yourself, gosh, you know, I'm really good at this when I'm on. And, you know, there have been moments when I've been pretty darn close to perfect. And thinking about the idea that you've been successful in the past, it can help ease the nervousness, it can help boost your confidence, and it can increase the odds that you're going to get something close to perfection when you step on the floor again. So instead of planning for perfection, I would reflect back on it as a way to boost confidence. That's oh, wonderful advice. So now I'm sure after having done all of this work on this book, are you hyper aware now of people's uh, pre-performance routines? And, and if so, like, who do you notice the most? I definitely, you know, when I watch sports, um, whether in person or on television, um, you know, I'm a parent. I have three teenagers and they're involved in competitive athletics or, you know, they've had to go to the SATs. They've had to go to college interviews. When I'm driving them to those sorts of experiences, I'm very conscious of the kinds of things we're talking about, you know, encouraging them to listen to music that makes them feel their best. Um, and even in my day-to-day -day work as a writer and editor, you know, I, I don't need to get psyched up for my job every day, but, you know, a few times a month, I'm going to sit down for an afternoon and there's something really important for me to write, something that's, you know, a little bit higher stakes than ordinary, something that matters a little bit more. And before I do those sorts of things, I absolutely will go back and spend just a minute or so reading something I wrote in the past that was very successful. Um, I work in an office where, you know, around me, I have, 
you know, examples of my past stories to try to, you know, help me feel more confident. So like I actually control my environment, you know, the same way if you're going to a high school gymnasium, they probably have banners on the wall of all the championships the teams have won. You know, you can kind of program your environment to have these confidence boosters around you in your eye line of sight. Um, so I do some of that. So yeah, I definitely, I think about what I want to do in those final few moments to try to find a way to sort of boost the odds in my favor. When you mentioned the SATs, I just, I, I went through a low light reel just this just at that moment when you, the pitfalls, I took my PSAT and it went really well. And then I didn't do anything to prepare for my SAT. And I worked a late shift at a pizza place and I just bombed it. So I should have read this book. Well, uh, you know, some of it gets back to practice. You know, if you didn't do anything to prepare, I'm not sure the book would have helped you. Uh, (laughs) Reading the book, you know, won't help you get into Juilliard if you don't know how to play the violin. So, you know, you definitely need to combine the substantive practice and preparation with this additional layer of sort of emotional and psychological tools to sort of help you put yourself in the right mindset to perform. I think it's a combination of of both of those things. Yeah, absolutely. We have to mention this, the Malcolm Gladwell keyboard. Why don't you tell like a snippet that story, I think it was so great. Sure. So there's, when you think about the rituals and superstitions that people have before they perform, some of them involve physical objects, you know, some lucky charm of some sort. And there's actually some research that shows that those kind of things can work. Specifically, there's research that shows that somebody who's using a tool that was once used by a professional or a celebrity, they tend to perform a little bit better. You know, and there's a couple different studies. One of them involved golf clubs. One of them involved study guides for tests. So I got in touch with Malcolm Gladwell. I sent him a copy of one of these studies and I told him I wanted to ship him a brand new keyboard for his computer that he would write on for a few months and then he would ship it back to me. And he agreed. So now I actually have it here in my office. It's Malcolm Gladwell's old keyboard and I don't use it every day, but when I am working on something that's a little bit more important or when I need sort of a boost in confidence, um, I pull out my lucky keyboard that used to be Gladwell's and I type on it. Um, and it's the kind of thing, you know, not everybody's going to be able to reach out to a celebrity person. But, you know, if there's a, a very successful member of your, of one of your dance teams, you know, maybe they have some some object that's important that they can pass along to some of the junior members. You know, in teams, you can sort of orchestrate these kinds of things and create your own lucky objects. Um, and I would definitely encourage people to try to do that. Oh, that is that is so awesome. My boss asked for this, this guy in our industry as a world champion. It's this Italian guy. And he asked for his shoes after his performance. And I told my boss, I said, I guarantee you that those shoes will fit me. It's going to be like, the ballroom dance version of Cinderella and I put them on and they did fit me and so he said when you win this competition I'm going to give these to you and so I have them in my in my closet <laughs> and, and do you use them? I don't even want to touch them they're that important to me I kind of just have them as a memento but it was just one of those things I know exactly what you mean to have that that magical quality to it, it yeah, no, it's it's interesting when you think about this. So um, my youngest son is a big fan of the Boston Celtics, and his favorite player on the Celtics is Marcus Smart. And this past summer, he had an opportunity to go to Marcus Smart's basketball camp. And at the end of the camp, the deal was Marcus would sign two objects for every student. And, and you know, these are all like young kids. So they all spent a lot of time strategizing over what they were going to have their favorite basketball player sign. And, you know, you can imagine there was a lot of T-shirts and there was a lot of posters and all that. But one of the kids was sort of more 
enterprising, he said, you know, what? I'm going to have Marcus Smart sign my shoes because unlike posters and unlike all this other stuff, I actually wear these shoes when I'm playing basketball. And knowing that Marcus Smart, my favorite player, signed my shoes might give me a little bit more quickness, might help me make a few more steals the way he does on defense. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. The idea that, you know, obviously that's kind of an isolated example. Not everybody's going to meet their favorite NBA basketball player. But the idea of, you know, get something special that I can use as opposed to just some shirt or poster. That's the kind of thing that I think can make a difference for people. So if we were kind of putting a bag together for one of our students getting ready to go to a big competition, we'd want them to, um, like you mentioned, you know, put together like a highlight reel, have have some type of repeatable process, maybe have some type of little memento. What else do you think that they should kind of have ready for like a big event like that? So I think we haven't talked a lot about anxiety, which, you know, we've talked about the fact that stage fright and adrenaline and anxiety, that they're sort of natural bodily responses to stress. But it's good to have some ways to try to cope with that. One of the techniques that I talk about in the book that's one of my favorites, it's a very subtle idea. It's called reappraisal. And the idea there is that, you know, when most people are feeling stage fright, the stereotypical advice given to them is don't be nervous or calm down. You know, those are very hard things to do. You know, if you're nervous, your your body's in that elevated, agitated state, it's hard to sort of get it to dial down. So what reappraisal does is it tries to shift it over to a more positive form of that, which is excitement. You know, if you think of nervous versus excited, excited is still a very highly aroused, agitated kind of state, but it's a more positive, opportunistic, optimistic form of it. It's not worrying about what can go wrong. It's, you know, being excited about what can go right. Um, So I would think a little bit of lessons about reappraisal and the idea that, um, you know, you want to focus on the fact that this is an opportunity for you to win and for you to be successful as opposed to, you know, it's a risky thing where you might fail. You know, trying to focus on that positive is something I would keep in mind. That is so good. I think having heard the term, you know, that going from nervousness to excitement, it's kind of like the same part of the brain. But I love that there's like a classification for that and like a terminology that just makes the language so all encompassing. I I think that that was really well stated. Yeah, there's a professor at Harvard, actually. Her name is Allison Wood Brooks, and she got interested in this back when she was an undergraduate at Princeton. She was in an acapella singing group that it sounds a lot like in that movie Pitch Perfect, and it was very, very competitive, and they have hundreds of kids try out for this every year. And one of the things she noticed is that kids who went into the audition process with that kind of excited attitude as opposed to the nervous attitude, they tended to do a lot better. And when she went on to get her PhD, she did an entire dissertation around this. She did all these experiments on people in competitive environments with singing and public speaking and math tests. And time after time, she found as subtle as it sounds that just having somebody say, I'm so excited before they did something tended to help them do a little bit better. That's what it's all about. You just nailed it. <laughs> That's, I just wish more people could vocalize that. And I think competition is kind of like the best man toast or, a, you know, some type of pitch in front of a, the C-suite or something like that. And, and so because it's such high stakes, unfortunately, there are people that will fold if it doesn't kind of meet the predetermined requirements that they have in their mind. What would you say to people that maybe have maybe lost their cool and are trying to recover kind of going into the next go round? They didn't have some of these tools under their belt yet, um, what would be what would be your recommendation? So I think there's two things you do. Number one, if there's any lesson you can draw from it, anything productive, you clearly want to use your opportunity, whatever opportunity you can to try to learn from your mistake, you know, if, you know, whether it's from a technical standpoint or whether it's, you know, something that you mismanaged your emotions in some way. But then once you've extracted that learning, according to most of the sports psychologists and most of the literature, you want to try to forget it and move on. You know, it, it gets back to this idea of thinking about your greatest hits before you 
you go on. Kobe Bryant used to talk about flush it and forget it. You know, when he misses a shot, he got rid of that memory. And if you think about your big time performers, when you talk to them, that's something that they generally say that when they fail, they take whatever lesson they can, but then they kind of take it off their hard drive and they just focus on times when they were successful because they know that focusing on their track record of success is going to help them get in the mindset to succeed rather than sort of obsessing about whether they're going to fail again. Wow. I cannot state it enough that I think that this book, Psyched Up, is just so perfect for this industry and for for ballroom dancers. And I mean, obviously for non-ballroom dancers, I think that anybody that's in those pressure-packed situations, you know, I think that this should be sold alongside outliers because I think it's just a great one-two punch. You have the practice and then you have the performance and to be able to get the most out of both, I'm going to make sure that every Arthur Murray person that I know has a copy of this book. I appreciate that. And I appreciate your enthusiasm for it. And I would imagine, you know, I don't know a ton about your business, but I would imagine that most of your students are doing this as a recreation or a hobby that most of them probably have day jobs. And I would say as important and as useful as these techniques can be in their the dance pieces of their lives, they should also think about how to use this in their day jobs, whether they're presenting in a business environment, whether they're going for a job interview, whether they're a salesperson that, you know, has to make their number by closing deals under pressure. Part of the premise of this book is that this is not just about football or basketball or the Olympics or competitive dance, our jobs more and more are dependent on a few days a month or a few days a quarter when we have some sort of a high stakes event, you know, sort of like in school where, you know, you'd go to class every day, but then you'd have an exam. You know, I think our jobs have the exam kind of piece of our jobs are more important than they used to be. So I'd encourage your students not only to think about this in their dance lives, but also to think about it in their their day jobs, um, because I think these techniques can be useful there as well. Yeah, absolutely. We really feel like, you know, Arthur Murray and in general, our business motto is really to be able to take dancing as like the catalyst for something that's going to improve in your life off the dance floor. And so whether that's being more confident to be more socially aware, and I absolutely agree. I think that it would be a shame if uh, if someone only got better in their dancing because of this book, <laughs> even just for people that are out on the dating scene and to be able to, to walk up and approach somebody. What if you had a pre-performance routine for that? God, I, I wish I had that when I was 20. <laughs> yeah, I did. I don't think I referred to it in the book, but I did come across something that said that for people going on first dates, that a very large percentage of them have a playlist of songs that they tend to listen to to try to get them in the right mood to be confident. And you're right, you know, I mean, dating is just a different kind of form of job interview when you get right down to it. You know, you need to be able to be confident, be charming, tell your stories, etc. And something that puts you in the right mood for that. And, you know, I think I mentioned in the book that there's chemistry involved in a lot of this stuff as well. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that a lot of first dates are accompanied by a cocktail because people, for better or worse, people tend to rely on alcohol as a means to try to get rid of some of that anxiety that goes along with those first impressions. So I think you're right that there's some relevance there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so now I want to ask you a few just rapid fire questions. And then now we'll it's wrap. time for rapid fire. Okay, so uh, first one is, uh, what is your comfort food? My comfort food, pizza. All right. In New England, is the pizza, is? do you guys still subscribe to like the East Coast kind of thin crust or are you guys going for something different? So the best pizza around here actually is down um, towards Connecticut. New Haven has the best pizza around here and it's charcoal fired and it's very, like some people would almost say that they burn it. It's, you know, it's very, very hot ovens, usually fired with coal or charcoal and very, very sort of crisp 
flowers be almost black and kind of crust. So that's my favorite style around here. Nice. And then you said you've got three kids. Are they boys, girls? What's the age range? I have a 19-year-old girl and a boy who's almost 17 and a boy who's 13. Gotcha. What's something that you feel like being a dad has kind of given you a different perspective on the work that you do? Hmm, that's an interesting question. So, you know, my kids are all involved in sports in one way or another. Um, I've coached them all at one point or another, you know, some better than others at times. I think there's some of the things we do at work when we deal with feedback and difficult conversations and helping people do their best. There are more similarities to parenting from that than I ever would have guessed. And especially as the kids have gone from being small to being more adult-like and into their teenage years, I think those parallels have become more striking. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. What's the last movie that you saw that made you uh, emotional? I don't know about emotional, but um, we just watched for the second time the movie The Big Sick. Uh, but it, you know, being thrown around in the Oscar conversation at the end of the year now, and that was probably my favorite movie of 2017. Nice. I haven't seen that yet. I have to check that out. Quite good. Okay. So now, do you have a, whether it was an actual or a, maybe a missed dance moment in your life? <laughs> oh, God. Um, uh, I missed probably the most memorable dance moment in my life. Uh, and it was definitely a, a moment of failure was freshman year in college at a party when things were getting a little rowdy and the vanilla ice song Ice Ice Baby came on and I went to college in New England and it was snowy outside and so I'm not sure whether it was my footwear or the dance floor itself were a little wet but I wiped out pretty spectacularly. I'm lucky I was not physically injured um, but emotionally I'm sure I have some scars from that. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can totally visualize that. That is so good. It was, it, whatever you're visualizing, it was 50% worse, I guarantee you. <laughs> oh man. And that was one of those songs that just took everybody by storm and you just had to dance when that song came on when it was first coming out. It's funny, I was out with a friend not too long ago and there was a band playing in a bar and they played that song. Who would have thought that in 2018 you can find a bar band that plays Ice Ice Baby, but the the crowd really did light up when it came on. It's one of those songs for people of a certain age. Man, you remember that. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I just have to say it's been such a pleasure getting a chance to chat with you and to talk about Psyched Up. I think it is a great read and it's just such a diverse lineup of stories and reference points, but also really practical. You know, the way that the way that you put it all together, really extensive research can really read like a medical document. And um, and you definitely did just the opposite. And and I just commend you for uh, for some really exceptional writing. Oh, I appreciate it. I really appreciate your enthusiasm for the book. And, you know, when I was writing the book, I certainly thought about athletes and salespeople and a list of kind of, kind of the obvious professions. But the idea that this would, it makes sense to me that this would appeal to competitive ballroom dancers, even if that's not an audience that I necessarily would have thought of. So I appreciate you seeking it out. Yeah, for sure. So now, you know, obviously the book's on Amazon and it's doing really well. So tell everyone like the best contact information for, for picking up a copy. Sure. It's still in bookstores. It's also for sale on Amazon. It's called Psyched Up, How the Science of Mental Preparation Can Help You Succeed. And you can also follow me on Twitter. It's at Dan McGinn, D-A-N-M-C-G-I-N-N. -N. Well, this has been Dan McGinn on Off the Floor. I am your host, Chris Lynham. And uh, once again, thank you. Pick up the book, Psyched Up, and uh, you will not go wrong regardless of your dance ability. 
Whether or not you've ever wiped out Dancing to Ice Ice Baby makes no difference. You can apply these principles in any venue where the pressure is on and uh, and this is how you can keep your body and your mind under control. Couldn't ask for a better start to 2018.